It's April 15, 2022. Your taxes are due. And Room Now is here to tell you. I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week and every week in April, it's all about PSA. I don't know if you've seen the blogs and the videos and the podcast. It's sort of amazing. Um, we have two, three, four really well-read blogs. Artie Kavanaugh's blog on combination biologics. Everyone's chewing up. Phil Mises just wrote, just wrote a blog on methotrexate and psoriatic arthritis. That's a hot topic. And Eric Ruderman on combined clinics. You might want to check those out. Uh, again, all the videos are being converted into podcasts. I think you're going to like the content. I've done a few short QD clinic videos on PSA and LFTs, PSA and loss of effect, PSA and how long does a drug actually last. Check those out, QD clinics on PSA. This week, we have a lot of news that's also PSA, but other things as well, including some real-world data from the British um, Society of Rheumatology Biologics Registry, the BSRBR, 22,000 patients with RA who were enrolled and started on um, a, a biologic or a targeted synthetic drug. And the question is, how long do these drugs last? How many do you go through? My question is, and actually I asked a survey question of rheumatologists, and I asked, how often do you achieve an ACR20 and how often do you achieve a remission rate in your RA patients? Well, you were pretty impressed with yourself. You said you got an ACR 20, 80% of the time and a remission rate of 60%. Well, sorry, Charlie and Charlene, no can do. This is real world data on what goes on in the UK and their first time, first line biologic or target synthetic remission rate is 13, no, 17%. And then when you switch to your second one, as is always the case, the rates go down. It goes from 17 with the first one to 13 with the second to 8% or 13% with the third, and then it goes down further from there. LDA, low disease activity, starts out at 29% with the first drug, uh, and then goes down to 23, and then 22, then 17. The point being that with changes, you lose effect. Um, it's almost to be expected. Uh, and that we don't often do quite as well as we think we do. So another study that actually looked at a comparison of responses to different drugs, this is a PSA study from the several different OPAL PSA studies. These were comparisons of tofacitinib, uh, adalimumab, and placebo. It was OPAL, I think, was a, a tofacitinib set of trials, and they had one where there was an adalimumab comparison. They looked at the median time to response for hack. And it turns out that that actually didn't matter. We tend to think of TOFA, I tend to think of jack inhibitors as working really quick, you know, 14 to 21 days. But in this study, looking at a hack outcome, um, you know, the median time was better for adalimumab than TOFA, um, about 30 days till they achieved the hack. That was the median, I believe. Um, placebo took 112 days. That you kind of expect almost never there, and that's what they found. Um, TOFA did have an advantage with a faster response uh, for fatigue um, compared to adalimumab, and that was um, 31 days versus 90 days. Um, again, minimal disease activity, MDA, so the superlative outcome was really the same between TOFA and adalimumab in those OPAL trials. Um, I found this study really interesting. Who do you think does better in responding to a, to a IL-17 inhibitor, men or women? 
I got into trouble last time I voted on this, so I'm not going to vote. Well, Alexis Ogby and colleagues looked at the patients in the ixekizumab trials, two different phase three trials, total about 676 patients, about 200 plus were males, 200 plus were females. And overall, um, males, uh, females had a lower response than males, meaning males did better. As far and all for all all the outcomes, ACR twenty fifty seventy, MDA DAPSA and its me- different measures for LDA and remission. Um, there were some differences throughout the study. Women tend, you know, we tend to know that women don't do as well with pain in um, the spondyloarthropathies, and probably true in PSA too. But in this study, women had higher HAC scores, higher um, leads enthesitis scores, and lower CRP levels. Now, again, why the males did better and was those factors that I just mentioned instrumental and why the women didn't do as well? Hard to say, but I was surprised by that result. A number of different COVID reports. we got three here. The value of the COVID. What happens if you have a COVID infection? Should you get the COVID vaccine? Well, this study from MMWR published by the CDC this week um, is pretty clear that um, uh, after you get two doses, um, let's see, it was about a 40% response after two doses of the vaccine effect. Um, and then, so you, these people with, with COVID who then get the, um, the, the vaccine, but then you get another 58% after the booster. And this is a, this occurred during the, the COVID Delta variant, uh, time frame. Um, during Omicron, the, the res- results were lower. There was a 35% after effect, uh, of vaccine efficacy after two doses that went up to 68%. Bottom line is that the best protection for someone, and it's been shown that if you have infection and then you get the vaccine, that's like that's where you get the best antibody titers. So I would thoroughly encourage my patients who had the infection to wait 60 days and then get the, the to get the infection. The CDC had said 90 days because their research said that there were no um, infections that are re- reinfections occurring within that 90 day time frame. I would get it sooner at 60 days. Um, so what else can we say? Um, uh, Copenhagen study looked at uh, what happens to rheumatic diseases, autoimmune uh, inflammatory rheumatic disease, AIRD in patients who get COVID. Uh, and I said over, overall, our patients do pretty well, but the, their study, which was a fairly large cohort, showed that AIRD patients, the rheumatic disease patients, have a tenfold higher risk of hospitalization than does um, age-matched, sex-matched population controls without rheumatic disease. So it was 7% versus 0.7% chance of hospitalization. Like other studies, they showed that rituximab was the one drug that you don't want to be on because it does increase your odds of COVID hospitalization. They showed an odds ratio of 14.6. And they showed that rheumatic disease patients, when they were hospitalized, had, of all the many things that they looked at, they tended to have higher uh, immunoglobulin G levels. Um, Not surprising. Autoimmune patients make immunoglobulin um, often as part of their disease. but And then during heightened disease activity and immunologic stimulation, you'll get even more. It's, now, is some of that related to autoantibody production that could happen in hospitalized COVID patients? Might could be. The NPF um, put out its COVID report. This is a report that actually was uh, published just a few weeks ago at the uh, American Academy of Dermatology meeting, the AAD. And they basically showed that their 
PSA patients on systemic therapy were not at risk for hospitalization or severe COVID-19 outcomes based on U.S. claims data. They also showed that the drugs that they use, that we use, TNF inhibitors, IL-17, IL-23, had no effect on vaccine antibody responses, and maybe that there was less hospitalization with TNF inhibitors. All these claims, all these same findings have been seen in rheumatic disease patients as well. Um, a study from uh, British Columbia looked at um, lupus patients who were taking antimalarials and what maybe the protective effect was and how you could tie that to drug adherence. So this study had 3,000 patients with lupus. Um, the vast, vast majority, over 90% received antimalarial at one point or another. When they started dividing patients up as to whether they were you know, adherent, partially adherent, badly adherent, bottom line is only 40% of patients were adherent to hydroxychloroquine. With a 6.4-year follow-up, what do you think was the protection of that? They looked at death, and they had 8% of their cohort die, 242 deaths. Being adherent to the antimalarial conferred a 70 to 80% lower risk of death. This has been seen multiple times, multiple diseases, but especially shown in lupus. Again, I'm a big proponent. I haven't yet started I'm a big proponent of actually measuring hydroxychloroquine levels, as Michelle Petrie has been teaching us, as a means of not only proving better efficacy, but also proving compliance. And this kind of data is what needs to be shared with patients to get them to be compliant. Uh, an interesting study on the risk of um, thromboembolic events with inflammatory myositis. You, if we're talking about inflammatory myositis and the risk of, you'd think I was going to talk about cancer, well, the VTE risk is there because it's an inflammatory disease. It's been seen in spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, et cetera. Not surprising, inflammatory myositis, there's a 2.3% risk of VTEs. That would be DVTs and pulmonary emboli. Um, half of those VTE events that did occur occurred within the six, first six months. So when the patients are at their hottest, when you're trying to get control of them, is when they may be at risk. So you might want to worry about an inflammatory myositis patient who has shortness of breath or has leg swelling. Predictors of VT included malignancy, infection, longer steroid use, and higher disease activity. Uh, a really novel report um, was uh, published in the journal Cell. I know you all subscribe to Cell. Uh, this was using single cell analysis of both skin and blood samples from uh, 97 patients with systemic sclerosis. And in particular, they find uh, abnormalities in stromal Scleroderma-associated fibroblasts. These are, these are LGR5 plus scafs or scleroderma-associated fibroblasts. That these are decrease and progressively decrease as the disease gets worse. The supposition here is that this is a key finding that this could be targeted therapeutically. Again, any news on scleroderma is good news. Uh, um, you know, some of the best research on gout these days comes out of. Um, the land down under, um, Nicola Dalbeth and uh, Lisa Stamp have this great report uh, about intensive treatment with urate-lowering therapy in gout. So everybody advocates for treat-to-target, getting the uric acid under six, 
fact is that even you rheumatologists don't do very well. Most of the studies show only 40 to 60% of you actually achieve that, even though you're measuring and supposedly aggressively treating. I know the patients are to blame partly here because they're nomadic. They don't come in. They like to be non-compliant. Treating gout is one of the hardest things that we do. In this study, they wanted to know if you would do better in preventing x-ray erosions if you were more aggressive in urate-lowering therapy. So they took 104 patients with gout who already had erosions, and they had to have an elevated uric acid that was, I guess, greater than six going in. And you either got randomized to standard treat-to-target regimen, which was then to get to a uric acid of actually lower than um, 300 millimoles per liter. And that, you know, equates to us to about five milligrams per deciliter. Uh, or an intensive regimen where you were going to get to even lower, 200 millimoles per liter. That equates to 3.7 milligrams per deciliter. The bottom line is that when they looked at clinical benefits, x-ray benefits, functional benefits, nah, sorry, Charlie, it didn't happen. What they showed that it was very hard to get this very, very low levels. Um, and it was, and this was a two-year study. Um, they used more allopurinol in that group, like the mean dose was over 750, I think. They, um, they had a number of, of uh, other distinguishing features. Um, they used more combination therapy to get there, so you, maybe you had to be on multiple urate-lowering therapies. But bottom line, no difference in clinical x-ray or safety outcomes if you went, how low can you go? Really, really low. So I think that that number of six milligrams per deciliter still is the right number. And the adage that if you have tophaceous gout, that you should go to five milligrams or lower is not going to produce probably better clinical outcomes. It might lead to better resolution of the tophi. And that might be the only reason to go even lower. Uh, So that's it for this week. Um, Let's see. Oh, no, no. I have another really... Um, I thought interesting report, the ACR Fellows Training Subcommittee report on pandemic um, effects. So um, the um, FIT, the Fellow in Training um, Subcommittee uh, for the ACR, did a survey um, soon after the onset of COVID. I think they did this in May and June. Um, and they had a fairly good representation. I think they got almost 20% respondents, um, and they showed that uh, amongst the fellows, their main concern, and this was early on in, 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 in the pandemic, was education, 73% were concerned, um, their own safety or doctor safety uh, and doctor's health, um, and then what the future job market was going to look like, almost 70%. They also had concerns about practicing telemedicine in 64%. So, Again, they all were reporting that there was a switch from didactics to nearly all virtual. We all saw that. Um, Again, most people were doing telemedicine very early on. Um, But I think that one of the things that came out of this is something that really is important. And that is that they were concerned about the job market. How are they going to get a job when all their interviews were going to be Virtual. I mean, I don't know if you do fellowship uh, 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 interviews or residency interviews. It's another big concern because our grads are not taught how to interview well. And there's a technology issue. There's a um, there's a strangeness. It's like being on camera and whatnot. So, you know, how do you do all this virtually? And how do you do this when 
COVID has affected everything, including hiring freezes. And how is this going to affect salary negotiation or what salaries are going to be offered? Um, and then lastly, they were concerned about, again, you know, again the, uh, how to best assess patients in a way that was meaningful to both the patients and the, um, the actual physician doing the assessments. Uh, congratulations to the fellows for pointing, being spot on and pointing out some of the more difficult things we're having to deal with during um, the pandemic, which we're still in. So hopefully this report will spurn uh, the fellow um, program directors and the fellowship program directors and others to address these needs for our fellows. So I just want to remind everyone, I don't know if you saw this week's Tuesday Night Rheumatology, it was Journal Club. Um, we talked about the Exceed and the Discover 2 study with um, Rachel Tate, uh, Philip Meese, and Peter Nash and myself. And oh my goodness, it was great. I mean, I go to a lot of journal clubs. This was like the best because we talked throughout and it wasn't like we didn't beat you to death with, you know, table number four B, you know, with all the data. Like we presented the data you needed to see, but we had a lot of discussion about perspectives, behind the scenes story, the facts. So I would thoroughly encourage you to look at that Tuesday Night Rheumatology from this week. You can look at it on our website, you can look at it on our YouTube channel, and you can now see it as a podcast, because if you're listening to this podcast, you could listen to the Tuesday Night Rheumatology Journal Club, which occurred just this past uh, Tuesday on the 12th. Next Tuesday on April the, 12th, uh, April the 19th, it's a great panel. It's uh, Controversies in PSA. Chris Richland, Daphne Gladman, Jose Scher, Peter Nash, Joe Marola, and I'm going to throw a bunch of tough questions at them. You should be there to ask your tough questions. We're going to have a blast. Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. Sign up for the webinar when we send you the email on Friday. Take care.